Hello, this is Chris Alvarez. Welcome to this episode of Science Fiction and the Fantastic Inside Out. In today's episode, I speak with well-known comic book writer Christopher Priest. So thank you and enjoy. It's just always hard to describe what my role is with Black Panther. Co-creator? Co-creator is a good word for it. Okay. I don't want people to get offended. Oh, okay. On behalf of Stan, well, now, well, now you're just trying to take something. I'm not trying to take anything away from Stan. Right. Stan's a great guy. I've been for you know, 40 years. You know, but the fact is, Doc Panther has a lot of that. You know, he, he created the character. Absolutely. You know, but the, the, the character he created, you know, the character that's, that, 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 that is on the, the screen now, is the multi, you know, the, the media sensation. Yes. That was launched out of Marvel Knights, that version of it. You know, uh, so how about, um, I could say, instrumental in the development of Black Panther? That sounds good. Yeah, we're, instrumental in the development of sounds good. I'm here at the Great Philadelphia Comic Con 2019 with Christopher Priest, who was instrumental in the development of the character of Black Panther and other comic book characters. Uh, thank you for speaking with me. Not a problem. Nice, nice to be here. Thank you. So first, uh, let's let's talk about the Black Panther. Tell me uh, your role in the in the development. Okay, so uh, the Black Panther went through several iterations over over the generations since uh, his debut in the '60s. Uh, in 1998, Marvel Comics approached me to redevelop the character because the character was currently not in print and uh, no one was really using him for anything. So. Uh, Right around 1998, uh, uh, Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti uh, launched a sub-imprint called the Marvel Knights. Okay. And uh, Marvel uh, gave them a bunch of characters that weren't being uh, utilized, such as Daredevil, the Inhumans, uh, the Punisher, and several other characters. And among those characters was the Black Panther. And uh, they approached me to redevelop the, the, the Black Panther and modernize him and, 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 and kind of bring a new vision to the character. So let's go back then to the beginning of your career. Where did your comic book development career start? Well, like, like most everybody else in comics, I started as a fan. Uh, and uh, I started reading comics when I was about eight years old, like in the, in the, in the late 60s. Um, uh, I went to a journalism uh, vocational school uh, in New York City, and at that time, New York City had a high school internship program that would place that would place high school kids with uh, in different uh, occupations. And uh, uh, I applied to five law firms at Marvel Comics, yeah. and then I blew off the law firms because I was hanging out with my girlfriend. And I was a kid, and that's what kids do—they blow off things like that. But I did show up at the Marvel Comics uh, uh, interview, and uh, there were, I think, four or five different uh, aspiring artists uh, and me. And I, I was the only writer. Uh, and uh, Jim Shooter, who was the editor-in-chief at that time, uh, uh, he interviewed everybody, and, and uh, he, he chose me. And I'm so grateful that he did. And that was 1978. That was exactly 40 years ago, uh, more or less. And, uh, and I've just been in the business ever since. So when you first interviewed, was there anything you could identify that you said or, or showcase that you think got them to, to chose, choose you? or? Yeah, I brought a comic book in that I wrote and drew that was really awful. Huh. 
Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it was, uh, I think, a 16-page comic book with uh, sequential storytelling, and it had a real plot and, you know, and real dialogue and everything, and I drew all the pictures and I wrote all the, all the words, and uh, Jim seemed to be uh, impressed by that, or, or at least he saw a potential. Uh, and then uh, once I started working there as an intern, as an intern, you spend all day doing scut work. You're making Xeroxes and you're running, doing coffee runs. But, you know, in between, I got to look over the shoulders of some of the most seminal names in the industry. You had Marv Wolfman, Len Wein, uh, Chris Claremont, uh, Roger Stern was working there, uh, 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 Dave Cockrum. Uh, who relaunched the uh, the X Men? You know, created the the what was at the time called the new Uncanny X Men. Uh, Denny O'Neill, uh, Al Milgram, Larry Hama was uh, uh, my immediate superior, and Larry Hama, uh, who created GI Joe. You know, uh, I was there when he was creating and developing GI Joe. So it was a really uh, intense time of growth for not only Marvel but for the industry in general uh, and uh, and I was right in the middle of it as this little punk that was you know uh, running around and making Xeroxes and, and, and getting coffee so as a comic book fan at the time did you have any radical ideas or changes you had in mind you know obviously you're, you start at the lowest rung but what were your, your ideas for the future I think my main idea was to stay employed and stay there, uh, and uh, keep my mouth shut and 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 and, and learn the craft as much as I could. Um, I really didn't come in wanting to set the world on fire or make any changes. I just wanted to be in the business, and I was so happy to be there that uh, it was just thrilling to just. I couldn't wait to get to work in the morning. I, I just. You know, and then after the internship ended, I went back to high school. I went back to the school, you know, uh, but I was working there freelance after school. So I'd be at school until 2.30, and then I would take the subway over to Marvel, and I'd be at Marvel until 7 or 8 o'clock working on, uh, there was a magazine called Crazy Magazine. That was a humor magazine like Mad Magazine. And, uh, and I was working on that and working on other freelance projects for them. And just, you know, again, just being... Whatever entry level stuff they had, uh, and and Jim Shooter personally mentored me, and uh, made it, and went out of his way to teach me the craft of writing and and how to edit and how to put these books together, and then he would take me in and sit me in a room with Stan Lee, and I had the great honor of being taught sequential storytelling by Stanley with, with Stanley holding up Jack Kirby pages and walking me through the panels on the pages and, and explaining how how Jack would lay out a page and how uh, page composition and, and perspective and you know establishing shots and how to do all that stuff um, and working with Marie Severin who uh, we, we lost last year and she was the art director at the time uh, working with John Ramita Sr. Uh, John Romita Jr. was a was a teenager like me. He was the key operator of the Xerox machine. Uh, and he and I, he was my first friend there because he was so happy to see me. The first thing he did was take the lanyard off with the key to the Xerox machine, and he put it over my neck and said, "It's all yours," you know. And he was like the first, you know, kid kid that I met there. Uh, 
So it was just a, a really uh, fun and very uh, exciting time for me. So what were some of your favorite characters or storylines at the time, or even outside of comics? What sort of stuff inspired what oh, you did? Oh, I was obsessed with comics. You know, uh, at Marvel, the, the, the death of Gwen Stacy, which was also tied into... Spider-Man had a friend named Harry Osborn, and Harry was on drugs. And uh, just how responsibly Marvel handled these, these, these topics, such as, you know, uh, Harry's depression, which led to addiction, issues with his dad, you know, with uh, uh, Norman Osborn, who was the Green Goblin, you know. Uh, but these are all universal concepts that they played out in metaphors of superheroes and villains and so forth um, and, and real tough life lessons you know Peter Parker losing the love of his life when, when Gwen Stacy died uh, these were just like just riveting uh, uh, stories at the time um, and, and that's the kind of stuff I wanted to do and then over at DC you know Denny O'Neill the legendary writer uh, who I eventually once I went to DC that was skipping ahead here uh, I eventually went to work for Denny, and and, uh, and Denny became a mentor to me as well. But Denny was also doing groundbreaking work with Batman and uh, Rosh Al Ghul, who has transitioned to the movies, uh, and with uh, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which was uh, a very controversial series at the time that uh, that just really challenged the the, the establishment and, and was a very political uh, comic book at the time. Uh, so all that stuff was like interesting to see uh, comics tackle real life issues and to take these fantastic characters and put them in what Stan would call the world outside your window uh, and, and just kind of grounded in reality uh, and yet have these fantastic stories take place in this pseudo reality so um, earlier someone had come by with a comic um, to, to be signed that you said that was your first editing gig so I'm curious about sort of the milestones within your career where you felt like you hit a new level. All right, so the, the comic you're talking about is called the Marvel No Prize Book. And that was my first uh, 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 solo editing assignment. I had been an assistant editor for some time by that point, but that was the first time that my boss, my immediate supervisor was Larry Hama. And that was the first time that Larry said, you know, all right, you take this one. And he would kind of look over my shoulder, but this was my book. I could put it together from the ground up. So I worked directly with Stan, because Stan Lee appears in the comic book as a comic book character, and he narrates the book. But, of course, Stan, he's, he was bi-coastal by that time, flying back and forth to L.A., and in the nascent stages of putting together the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, Marvel film projects and TV projects. Stan had no time to write this silly book so uh you know i was actually writing uh writing it and editing it uh but i would send the stuff over to stan who would take another pass at it he would read my my script where i'm approximating his voice whatever and then he would take a pass at it and clean it up and send it back so you know there and then uh uh, uh I, I later uh, landed a, a regular writing assignment on Power Man and Iron Fist, okay. and that was my first ongoing regular series uh, uh, where I became the first African-American writer to get an ongoing writing assignment uh, uh, in, in superhero comics. Um, so we did that. We did Conan the Barbarian. Um, 
and uh, uh, early into that 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 uh, that career swing, uh, we did a we did a one shot special called Spider Man versus Wolverine, which was a huge success. Uh, and uh, the artist and I, we thought, well. We've arrived now yeah. because it was very well received. They sold truckloads of these things, and we thought, okay, boom, you know, uh, we're 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 finally going to be quote unquote names in the business. Yeah. Well, that didn't happen, uh, but uh, it's still a book that that fans fondly remember, and uh, I, I sign a lot of them at these shows when I go there. So that those were the early milestones, I think. So, do you pitch for certain titles, or are you just basically? Give it a call. Hey, you're going to be working on such and such. You know, how does that process go? Well, uh, I don't really pitch anymore uh, because the business has changed so much where the, the, the consensus is like, don't call us, we'll call you. So uh, usually the, the company will come and pitch to the talent rather than the other way around. I mean, there are exceptions to everything. There's lots of stuff that I'd like to do. Um, but... Uh, there's now all of these uh, algorithms and I don't know weird systems that the uh, the majors use to figure out whether to predict how a book is going to perform. I think all that's kind of a waste of time. Nobody really knows how a book's going to perform until it hits the stands. Yeah. Somebody was here with a copy of uh, Black Panther 23. And Black Panther 23 went out with a, a fairly low press run because at the time, Black Panther was not a very commercial, commercially value, uh, viable comic book. So it had a very low, small press run. But in that issue, he teamed up with Deadpool. At the time, Deadpool was also not a viable character either. And I was writing both Black Panther and Deadpool at the time. So we did a crossover with, with, with uh, Black Panther and Deadpool. And those issues now are collector's items because they're so in demand but the press run was so limited on them. So uh, if I've learned anything in 40 years, is that nobody knows nothing. And all due respect to these people that they hire who do these formulas. So if I pitch Potato Man versus uh, Asparagus Boy, somehow they, they send that to some little dark room where these people are hunched over these computers and they come back with some sort of prediction about how many copies based on the talent, based on the characters, and they have some sort of formula, you know. But the truth is, every now and then, Marvel or DC or, 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 or the, the smaller publishers, every now and then they're caught with their pants down, yeah. where they thought this book was not going to perform very well, and then they sold out, which is a good thing to do, except that now it takes a minute for them to have to go back and reorder and print more, and by that time, maybe that wave is, is that, that wave of interest has passed. So yeah. who knows? So, like with Power Man and Iron Fist, uh, was that someone else's idea and it was given to you, or did you develop it, or how, how did that one come out? The book needed a writer. The, 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 writing, the writer that was had been on the book uh, had left and moved on to do something else. They had uh, Kirk Busiek was doing uh, some fill-ins on it. Um, I don't know. I didn't really know Kurt at the time, so I don't know for sure if Kurt had intended to stay or if he wanted to stay. All I know is that there was an open seat. And Jim Shooter wanted to, uh, I think, uh, I don't want to speak for Jim, but my impression was that Jim was like the best way for uh, for me to learn my craft is doing. 
and, and having to meet that monthly deadline yeah. and putting me with a veteran like O'Neal was a very smart thing to do to have someone like that. So Shooter came down the hall and more or less made it a shotgun wedding. Uh, Denny wasn't ha- was not happy about it at first, um, but Denny and I grew to be great friends. He grew to be a great teacher, uh, and it's like one of those really schlocky movies where, you know, uh, you know, at first like get that kid out of my office, you know, and by the end of the movie it's like son, yeah. you know, and Denny's like dad now. So I love him to death. Cool. So as far as um, Black Panther. So for both for that that Power Man and Iron Fist, and also when you help redevelop Black Panther, where do you get your ideas from? Like, do you just look at how do you develop it? How do you, you know? What, do you draw from external inspirations? Do you just look within the comic? What do you take? take? You know, I think you know most writers uh, they find their inspiration everywhere. You know. From books, from TV, from film, uh, from life experience. A lot of my life experience goes into these comics, and it's like again, it, it works its way out in, in metaphors. Uh, there was a, a character called the Ray, who's still around, the Ray, and uh, there was, we did a, an annual, the Ray Annual, back in 1993. And in this annual, the Ray spends 20 pages, uh, half of the annual, trying to prevent a plane from crashing there's a there's a passenger jet it's been crippled it's coming down over philadelphia okay (laughs) and and the ray flies up there and he's seen superman do it a million times you come up onto the plane and he flies and he gets up under the wing and he keeps the plane from crashing and he waves to the crowd hi crowd you know that kind of thing uh but the ray finds out it was much harder to 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 stop a crippled jet than uh, th- th- than it looks. Uh, so that story was actually I, that was about my divorce. That was about my marriage. Uh, you know, uh, and that my marriage was falling apart. And no matter how hard we tried to save it, just just it just the harder you tried, the worse things got. You know, it's like trying to nail Jello to a tree. So uh, in the comic book, I never say obviously that it's about that, but that's where that idea came from where I was like, you know, I was writing about what was going on in my life that I had this plane that was crashing and I was trying everything I could to save it and ultimately failed as Ray fails in the story. He fails to save the save the plane. So with comic books, is it like TV where you have like a, a writer writing room where a lot of people are throwing ideas or is it just a couple people together who develop it and it's just then you bring in new writers who change the, the path of the story over time? Well, I, I wish we I wish we could afford a writer's room. Writer's room costs a lot of money, yeah. you know, because uh, all those guys get paid, yeah. you know. And then, you know, they all throw the ideas around. And uh, on like, like on a TV series, there's a roster. And, you know, the next guy is up. Whoever's up, he's the guy that actually goes off and writes the script. But they all break the story. They all plot the story together. Okay. Uh, in comics, you got yourself and the editor. Because yeah. we can't afford to have four or five writers on a, on a comic book. Yeah. Um, and my God, sometimes it's incredibly hard. Yeah. And as you get older, it gets that much harder. I mean, it's like there's so many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of comic books that have been published over the years. Yeah. You know, So I'm going to hold a gun to your head. Write me a, a, a new Batman story that's never been seen before, an original Batman story that's never been seen before. You know, uh, and, and you must be creative 
by the third of the month. You know, oh, and put the penguin in there. Make the penguin in there. You know, and, and it's like you, you, you just want to kill yourself. You're like, ah! It's 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 a lot harder than it looks, kids. It's yeah. really tough. So in the panel, you mentioned um, that you had developed, I guess, the character Manape. So I was curious if you could go over that story, um, that whole thing with the movie connection. Oh, okay. So uh, Nate Moore, who is the executive producer of the Black Panther film, he called me early in the development process, and he was, uh, uh, we, were, we were kicking around ideas. They didn't have a script yet. So he was kicking around concepts and ideas and, and wanted to get some ideas from me, and I'm sure he made other phone calls to other creative people in the comic book business. Uh, and at some point in the conversation, he said, well, he was asking what villains I'd like to use, and I wanted to use a character named Achebe. And Achebe is kind of the Joker to uh, Black Panther's Batman. Okay. Yeah, he's like this defrocked priest, and he's kind of nuts, and he's... Anyway, and they weren't really feeling Achebe. They said, well, we're thinking we'd like to use Man-Ape. And I said, I'm sorry, I, I, I couldn't understand you. And he said, Man-Ape. And I said, to say it again, I, he says, Man-Ape. And I'm, and I'm on the phone, I'm, I'm thinking, we have a really bad connection. I... I one more time, he says, Man Ape. I said, I'm sorry, are you saying Man Ape? And he says, Yes, Man Ape. I said, There's a character named Man Ape? And he goes, Yeah, you wrote him. I said, I, I, wrote, I wrote a character named Man Ape. You know, and I went downstairs to my, my long boxes downstairs and I dug through the Black Panther. And sure enough, there's Man Ape. I had forgotten all about him. <laughs> I thought, What an incredibly silly name. You know, I, I can't, and I'm saying, like, You know, uh, and I, I said, well, Nate, if I were you, I, I, I don't think I would put Man Ape in, in, in a movie. I, I don't, because he's just silly. Uh, but sure enough, they put the character in the film. They didn't, they didn't call him Man Ape. They call him Umbaku, and and uh, and he just about stole the film. He, he was excellent. Uh, so that shows you how much I know. So, um, oh, I just blanked on the question I had. Um, Oh, so were you formally brought on to help with the film, or was it more just like informal questions and that sort of thing? Uh, it, it, it was informal, but I, it felt... I, I appreciated being consulted. I appreciated, you know, that the work and the investment that we had done in the character had been respected enough that they could pick up the phone and, and kind of uh, let us weigh in. I, I felt... I, th I thought, man, that's great. I, I, I was very happy about that. So I want to explore more when you helped redevelop um, Black Panther. Uh, what sort of elements did you pitch? Maybe stuff that made that stick, stuck, or maybe stuff that didn't quite make it? Well, basically, uh, Black Panther had become, over time, he was kind of languishing because he wasn't currently being published. And uh, over time... It's like the writers, uh, and, and with all due respect to the other writers, that they, the writers had kind of lost sight of who he was. Mm -hmm. And he had just become this sort of adventurer who was like, you know, he was the black guy standing in the back of the Avengers class photo. Hey, how you doing? You know? Uh, but, you know, the, the, the rap against him was like, well, he has no powers. You know? And they didn't know what to do with him because the Avengers would go off to fight Thanos and what's Black Panther going to do against Thanos? You know, uh, so when they, uh, when uh, uh, 
uh, Joe and Jimmy when they approached me about the book. Initially, I turned them down because, you know, I, I wasn't going to write that character. Uh, and so we had a number of discussions about it. And I said, well, look, I, I can take a shot at it, but no more of that stuff. It's like, you know, if I'm going to write him, you know, uh, he's got to be capable and smart. He's the Black Panther. He's not the Black Bunny. You know, he, he you know, he, he's, he's got to be 10 steps ahead of, of, of his prey. I mean, these Panthers, they're incredibly smart. They, they're, they're, they're hunters, you know. Uh, and then if, if I'm going to write him, then I need to go back to what Stan Lee uh, created in that character. And if you read Fantastic Four 52 or, you know, when, when, the, when the character shows up, uh, he is technologically adept. He's very smart. He's ten steps ahead of his prey. And his prey, the, the, his, what he was hunting was the Fantastic Four. He single-handedly beat the Fantastic Four and laughed at them. He beat them and went, ha, 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 That's Black Panther. Yeah. You know, I said, you know, this is the guy that I'm going to write. If, if you're going to let me write him, then, then this is what I'm going to So I get credit and blame because when we relaunched the Black Panther in the Marvel Knights thing, the Black Panther purists were very upset. Because how dare we give him a bulletproof costume? How dare we give him an iPhone? The iPhone hadn't come out yet, but we gave him something that was called a Kimoyo card that essentially, it it has all the capabilities of an iPhone. And now it's it's just, you know, when I tell this to to fans of the film, they think I'm nuts or they think I'm being facetious or ridiculous. You know, uh, but of course he, he has all this technology. When we gave him the technology, we came under fire from the purists who just wanted to have like, you know, a knife in one hand and a banana in the other hand, uh, you know, and I go, no, no, he, he's the Black Panther. So he had all these technical gizmos and he had all these great plans and he he bankrupted Tony Stark with one phone call. He took over Stark Industries, you know, with one phone call. Yeah. That's Black Panther, yeah. you know. Uh, so that's my contribution to him is just kind of bringing him into, at the time, into the 90s, but basically, you know, you know, endowing him with these capabilities that, frankly, Stan Lee had endowed him with, you know, and, and, and you know, it's, it's a compliment to, to someone said, well, you, you, you moved Panther forward, but I feel like I took him back to what he should have been all along, because huh. all I did was read Stan and went, that's who the guy is. Huh. Interesting. All right, so... Um since the, that since that work, what, what uh, projects have you been working on? Uh, since Black Panther? Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. So Black Panther got me uh, stereotype. Got me uh-huh. uh, uh, typecast. Uh-huh. Uh, at, you know, uh, before Black Panther, I had written everything. I'd written. Green Lantern for DC, and I'd written Justice League for DC, and I'd written Power Man, Iron Fist for Marvel, Spider-Man for Marvel, you know, uh, all kinds of books, whatever was available, and I felt like I was competitive uh, with any other writer uh, uh, of any ethnicity or or whatever, and uh, after Black Panther, for reasons I don't completely understand, I became known as a black writer. And uh, the copy industry went through a, a period of time that they're still kind of slowly dragging out of 
where instead of hiring writers, they began casting writers. Uh, so if you were writing about a a uh, a, a, a Brazilian lesbian witch, uh, you could the only only people they would offer to write that book was Brazilian lesbian witches. You know, so a lot of uh, women were not allowed to write male characters. A lot of men were not allowed to write women characters. A lot of black people were not allowed to write white characters. You know, so they would they would they would go, well, he's a black guy. Let's offer him these black characters. So I got offered Black Goliath. I got offered, you know, uh, Firestorm, who ironically turned out to be a little black kid. They, DC had changed him to a black kid. Uh, I got I got you know, every eighteen months my my phone would ring, and it'd be either Marvel or DC offering me a character of color. Hey, what do you think? We're getting ready to do, uh, uh, you know, Jungle Bunny guy, you know, and and, and, and and it's not that I don't want to or don't have any interest in writing black characters, but I don't want to be a black writer. I, you know, when did I become a black writer? And why am I no longer eligible to write white characters? You know, but more to the point, why are you... Uh, typecast me as a black writer when Black Panther, the comic book, it was not about Black Panther. It was about this his State Department handler, this guy named Ross. The story was about Ross. It was about his collision with the black experience. That's what the book was about. You know, and all the humor and all the, the drama and stuff like that, it came from Ross. You know, uh, where Black Panther, he was the he was the more balanced guy, but but, but but Black Panther was a straight guy to, to Ross. The, 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 the stories were driven by Ross and, 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 and narrated by Ross, you know. Uh, and, you know, I spent a career writing The Ray and, and writing, like I said, you know, just like all these other different characters. And all of a sudden, I couldn't get arrested. And I just made a stand where I said very politely, thank you for calling. I really appreciate that, but, uh, you know, uh, I really don't want to be limited to only writing characters of color, you know, and then I would pitch them, well, how about Martian Manhunter, or how about uh, Captain America, well, I actually ended up doing some Captain America, but how about doing some of this other stuff here, Uh, so I wouldn't want to do what they wanted me to do, they would not want to do things that I was pitching. And I go, well, I appreciate the call. I'll talk to you again in 18 months. Yeah. And we, we, this was the cycle for, I was out of work for about nine years. Wow. Where I just didn't work at all in the business. Uh, until one day, I got a call from DC Comics, and they said, Deathstroke. Okay. And my first question was like, is he black? And they said, no. And I went, okay, I'm listening. You know, and and the conversation picked up from there. So in 2016, uh, he didn't show a picture. I started writing this guy. And uh, uh, all of a sudden, my phone starts ringing. And, I, you know, and, and, and there'd be some editor on the other line going, wow, Priest is back. And I'm going, I never went anywhere. <laughs> yeah. You just never offered me anything. You know, you just... It's perfectly all right for me to write a character of color. I'm not saying I wouldn't write it or, or that I won't. Right. And hopefully I will and will soon. Uh, 
I don't want to just be limited to only writing characters of color. Yeah. So I need some career ballast. I need, you know, uh, uh, to do other things and let fans and, and more importantly let editors who are in position to hire me let them see well he can write anything I'm a writer I can write anything mm-hmm. you know women goats you know whatever I'll take what you got yeah. Bugs Bunny yeah. you know they, they just they just had uh, Deathstroke fighting Yogi Bear and they passed me over for that I couldn't get Yogi Bear you understand <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. so this is what I'm talking about where I'm just going but thankfully, I think a lot of that's behind me. I did a run on Justice League. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I, uh, I, and I, I, I'm uh, developing other things. That uh, I'm doing Vampirella for uh, uh, for Dynamite, uh, and, I, and I have some projects uh, coming up in Marvel that I can't discuss right now. But uh, neither one of them could be called a black book, you know, that kind of thing. So. Hopefully, I'm, I, I'm back to being a writer again without the modifier. When did you think the switch happened, like year-wise? You think it the kinda... switch into the stereotype? No, back out. Oh, it definitely happened in 2016. It happened when DC offered me Deathstroke. Okay. You know, when they offered me a character that had nothing whatsoever to do with my ethnicity. Okay. It was just like, you know, we think that, you know, your sardonic sense of humor, because Deathstroke's kind of a jerk, you know? And, and I'm kind of a jerk, and you know, I, I, and they're like, "Well, I, we, we think this would be like a good match that you would have the sensibility to." Uh, it's hard to, to, to sustain a comic book about a villain. The Joker has never had a successful comic book, as popular a character as he is. Yeah, you know, villains don't really sell that well, and. Uh, uh, and Deathstroke's book was kind of uh, it, it was underperforming, and they they and they they thought they needed some uh, some new uh, energy to it. Yeah. So Jeff Johns and I uh, worked on the the, the the relaunch for the rebirth uh, thing, mm-hmm. and I told Jeff, okay, whatever we're getting ready to do with Deathstroke, we should set it up so that it translates uh, to other media. Mm-hmm. I mean, as long as we're Re- rearranging the furniture in the house. Yeah. Let's do that with an eye toward uh, other media, and 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 I want to ground it in as much reality as possible. And you know, because uh, at the time De- Deathstroke was this big hulking guy, and he and he's he's killing everybody inside. And you know, I said let's let's scale it back and 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 refocus it and make it. He's not really a, the book is not really about a, a Deathstroke is not really about a, a, a supervillain or a killer. It's about the world's worst dad. <laughs> He's like a complete turd of a father, yeah. you know. And it's like, what if your dad was a supervillain? That's what the Deathstroke book is about, yeah. you know. So it's got a lot of warmth and humor and and, and and so forth, along with the action. And of course, yeah, he murders people every now and then. Of course, you know, got to. Yeah. Uh, but I'm hoping that Jeff, who is now the showrunner on the Titans uh, streaming uh, project. He's uh, announced that uh, he has cast uh, these actors uh, to uh, portray Deathstroke and Deathstroke's family that, that are going to be added to the Titans thing. So I'm hoping that the work that, uh, and I give Jeff a lot of the credit because Jeff and I got on the phone. And he was instrumental in forming this rebirth vision because we did to Deathstroke essentially what we did to Black Panthers, kind of come up with a new vision for him. Right. So I'm hoping that that translates as we predicted it would, that it would translate easily to the, the to the screen. And since you mentioned the, the year that 
that co the comics did go into this sort of stereotyping of, of writers. Would that be about 2005 or six? Yeah, right in, right in there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, regardless of the character, is there like a favorite storyline you created that you really that you really liked? Well, Spider-Man versus Wolverine. I don't think I'll ever write anything better than that. Uh, so uh, I'm kind of screwed there. That's like you know, that's the one hit you get. Yeah. Uh, there's a hardcover out now called Batman versus Deathstroke that I'm very proud of. Okay. That I put a lot of work into and, and it was very strong writing. Uh, at least I think it's very strong writing. Um, and then there's another hardcover out that just came out that, that's uh, my run on Justice League. Uh, it's actually called Justice League by Christopher Priest. That's that's the title uh, of the hardcover. But it, it, it has my whole run. Uh, it's really wonderfully printed. And uh, it's a Justice League. If, if you've been a, uh, if you've read Justice League comics, uh, you haven't read this one. They've never done a Justice League like this, where it's written like a workplace drama. Oh. You know, like I saw this episode of Barney Miller. Do you remember Barney Miller, oh, the yeah. sitcom? I've been watching it lately. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. There's an episode. No, no, no. I'm sorry. WKRP in Cincinnati. Yeah, I remember that one too. Yeah, the, the radio station, the company. No, I'm sorry. Excuse me. Let's try it again. News radio. There was a there was a okay. sitcom called News Radio. Yeah. Okay. Remember that one. And uh, Phil Hartman was a star. Was one of the stars there. Okay. So, uh, news radio. Uh, Phil Hartman uh, goes to the, the station manager and complains about his desk because his desk is falling apart. Yeah. So the station manager orders him a new desk. Uh, and the assistant station manager, who is his girlfriend, she comes to the office and goes, "What did you do that for?" And he's like, "What are you talking about? You, you, you're buying Phil a new, you're buying Phil a new desk." And he's like, "Yeah." And he's like, "You can't do that. Why? Because now all hell's going to break loose oh, in a newsroom because oh, you oh well, you have the new desk. I see, you know. And now uh, now everybody wants a new desk. That kind of thing. Yeah. So I said, "Well, what if we apply that same dynamic to the Justice League? Not the petty jealousy, but what I wanted to do was find." the fault lines yeah. along those characters and then apply downward pressure yeah. and see what happens. Yeah. So I have Batman who's been a leader of the Justice League forever and I can't stand that. I was just sick of Batman. So I had Batman go without sleep for like three days and he misses a key bit of information on one of the uh, missions yeah. and someone ends up getting killed. Sure. Uh, and that creates a fault line between him and Wonder Woman because Wonder Woman was on that mission and Wonder Woman kind of blames him even though she knows it's unfair to blame him, she can't help but kind of blame him yeah. for the failure of the mission. Yeah. And that schism starts to widen and and infect all the different relationships between the different characters. Yeah. So you get about ten issues of that, and I'm really happy with that because it's so different from the standard. Okay, here's a bunch of heroes and they go fight, you know, some cosmic menace. Yeah. I didn't want to just do the same story. I'm tired of reading that, that story. I'm tired of writing that story. So, you know, I just went, well, what if this really was a group of these demigods and they actually existed in our real world? Yeah. You would have Congress investigating them, which I did. Yeah. Who They live on this satellite with these with this transporter. Yeah. Well, why, if you have this transporter technology, why don't you share it with the U.S. military? Yeah. Who controls that airspace? Yeah. What are you guys doing up there? Yeah. You know, uh, that kind of thing. And because of the... The, 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 the person who gets killed, Congress opens an investigation, all this other stuff happens, blah, 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 
And then at some point, I crashed a Justice League satellite in Somalia in the midst of this civil war. Oh, wow. And these people, these refugees, thousands of refugees who are fleeing, uh, you know, these, these murder gang, murder and rape gangs, they encamp around the Justice League wreckage, the wreckage of the satellite. The Justice League, they're waiting for the Green Lanterns to return from space so they can grab their wreckage and leave. But then, but then they realize if we grab, as soon as we leave, these people here are going to get slaughtered. So do we, do we, do we fight off these warlords? Do we? Do we encamp here forever and police this region? You know, they never had to face this question before. Because all this stuff flew beneath their radar. Because they're busy fighting the big galactic menace. But here's a problem that they can't solve. And the team becomes divided about whether to stay or whether to go. You know, and what do they do? Go by the book and find out what they do. So it's this controversial stuff. So I, I thought it was it was an interesting experiment to have this run that was so different and that you know uh, broke with the tradition of just the the same old same old kind of you know. And now back to our story where they're fighting the big giant monster. Who cares? That's cool. Yeah, I like that. Any character that you really would like to write that uh, maybe you did write before and want to write again? Or I've been begging. Marvel to give me Iron Man and DC to give me Batman, and they never have. Okay. The closest I came was Batman Deathstroke. I'm grateful for that. I'm not resentful for DC, but I want to write Batman. Hello, I want to write Batman. That's so they heard it. And you have ideas in mind, some stories you. Want? I have no clue. Oh. I, I don't. Want, I don't waste my time thinking about what I would do with a character. Okay. You know, because if it's never going to happen, that's that's. I'm busy. I got. I got. I got. I got to think of the next episode of Deathstroke. You know, yeah. uh, if that ever becomes even a remote possibility, yeah. then yeah, I, I, I'm sure I'd have a million ideas I like to do with that. And 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 again, each writer brings his own experience and his own sensibility. You know, the Justice League has never had to deal with the crisis in the Congo because they never had a writer that gave a shit about the Congo. Excuse my language. I'm sorry. Yeah. You know, so, you know, and that's not me casting aspersions on the other writers. I'm just saying everyone brings their own passion and their own experience. So Batman has never had a black writer to my, ex- I don't think he has, uh, as a regular writer. I've written individual issues of Batman, but I believe that I would bring uh, uh, a sense of a sensitivity and a sensibility to the character that he hasn't had before. Yeah. Just because he's never had, well, he's never had me specifically, but he's never had someone who comes out of. Like I, I would love to see Tanahashi coach right Batman. I would, I would, I would really, literally, I, I'd pay money to, to see that happen. Yeah. I'm glad he's writing Captain America. Yeah. You know, they, they put him on, on on Black Panther, and I told people I'm not really that impressed. You know, and that's nothing against Tanahashi Coates, but casting Tanahashi Coates on Black Panther, it's a commercial idea, but that don't impress me. You want to impress me, put him on Superman. That would impress me. I'd love to see what he would do with friggin' Superman. You know, that kind of thing. So, because I think these characters, they haven't benefited from a female writer, a Latino writer, you know. It's just, it, you know, and no offense to anybody else, but it's like, here's the latest generation of, 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 of white male fans who have risen in their craft to the point where they become the next Batman writer. 
uh, Batman would benefit a lot from people who come from a varied, a varied uh, worldview and varied experience. Yeah. So, um, where can people find you online? ChristopherPriest.com. I'm not on social media because it's 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 rampant with this negativity and people, all all, all the trolls and and, and and that kind of stuff and just uh, people are just so entertained by negativity and I'd rather not have all that negative negative stuff in my life. So I, I stay off social uh, social media, but that's where my website is. I try to get up there as much as I can. I'm really busy, so I'm not there a lot. But there's a whole bunch of articles and behind-the-scenes stuff and blog posts and all kind of nuts, you know, nuts and bolts up there. And some really bad music. So I'm a really bad musician, so that's up there, too. Check, check out how bad it is. You got to listen to there it. There you right? go. There you go. <laughs> you got to go see it. Yeah. Oh, um, so that's all the questions I have. Do you have any last words or thoughts? It's cold in here. It is. Yeah. I'm feeling cold now. And my boss was just here, and I just blew him off. I just saw yes. Nick, Nick, Nick Marucci. He's my Vampirella. He's the publisher of Dynamite. He's my Vampirella boss, so i got to go find him. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Not a problem. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to visit chrisalvarez.com or theartofsciencefiction.com for more great interviews, photos, and articles. Your visits help support this podcast. Please remember that my first name, Chris, does not have an H in it. One of the best ways to provide feedback for this podcast is to rate me on iTunes. Please give me a good rating if you liked it, or feel free to give me a bad rating if you didn't. I'll use that feedback to make this a better podcast. You can also follow me on Instagram under Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Facebook under Chris Alvarez WLC on YouTube under Chris Alvarez WLC and on Twitter under Chris Alvarez WLC. Thanks for listening and keep imagining the future.